device or whatever, turn off your cell phone except for the Bible part. And uh, there's an outline in your bulletin. There are printed and uh, printed messages at both exits and then online and then also the uh, audio messages online and encourage you to spread the word to friends about that resource. <clears throat> I'm overlapping a couple of verses I just touched on last week. <clears throat> Verse uh, 6 and 7 I mentioned last week, but I want to go a little more over them this week. Jesus is talking here to the Pharisee Nicodemus who has come to him by night and Jesus speaking says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Or several uh, scholars prefer to translate, how can these things happen? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one is ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. It would be a great tragedy to spend your entire life studying the Bible and then end up perishing on Judgment Day. I mean, what a waste to be a Bible scholar knowing the original languages and then miss the chief message of all of the Bible. James Boyce, in a little booklet, Does Inerrancy Matter?, told of a gathering of ministers where an evangelical pastor argued a point based on the Bible's teaching, and in the course of his Short talk, he mentioned Jesus' words and Jesus' promise to return. When he had finished speaking, a professor from a leading Protestant seminary stood up to counter what that pastor had just said. This professor said, You cannot appeal to the teaching of Jesus Christ because we do not know what Jesus really taught. The Gospels are contradictory at this point. Each of them has been written to correct the others. So far as Christ's return is concerned, we have simply got to get it into our heads that Jesus is never coming back and that all things are going to continue on as they have from the beginning. Dr. Boyce uh, added after that, uh, citing that comment, he said it would be nice if such views were limited to just a few liberals out there. But then he cited a survey of over 7,400 clergymen in five major denominations, and one question that was asked on the survey was, do you believe 
the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. Now, that is not asking the more restricted question, do you believe the Bible to be without error in everything that it says? That would, of course, be a much more narrow question. But this question just asks if in some undefined sense you believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God. In spite of the level at which the question was asked, 82% of the Methodists, 89%, that's almost 9 out of 10 Episcopalians, 81% of those untied, I mean united uh, Presbyterians, uh, and 57% of the Lutherans, and get this, 57% of the Baptists, said no, they did not believe the Bible to be the Word of God. If those statistics go across the nation, you got a better than 50% chance in going to a Baptist church of hearing a pastor who doesn't even believe the Bible's inspired by God. Uh, it's that bad. And uh, Dr. Boyce wrote that booklet back in 1979, We've had three decades of postmodernism since then. I doubt if things are better now than they were 30-some years ago. Now, in our text, Jesus is talking with a leading religious teacher in Israel. Jesus calls him, in verse 10, the teacher of Israel. And he doesn't even understand the basics of spiritual truth. Nicodemus was a man who had devoted his life to the study of the Bible, the Old Testament, in its original languages. Many of the Pharisees, the rabbis, could recite the entire Old Testament in Hebrew by memory. Almost all of them had memorized the entire book of Psalms. Uh, Not a small accomplishment. And yet... He didn't understand when Jesus said in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. See, to gain entrance to God's eternal kingdom, Nicodemus was counting on the fact that, number one, he had been born a Jew. He took great pride in that. And number two, he wasn't just your average common hoipoloid sort of Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a notch above all of the other Jews. And Jesus, in one sentence, yanks the rug out from under Nicodemus. He doesn't even mess around with polite, you know, exchanges. He just says, unless you are born again, you're doomed, in effect. You will not see the kingdom of God. He says, your natural birth, all of your religious devotion, all of your religious studies mean absolutely nothing, Nicodemus. You must be born again. Now, the main reason you or anyone needs to be born again, of course, is so that you might see or enter the kingdom of God. Jesus uses those somewhat interchangeably in verse 3 and verse 5, and that means to avoid God's judgment. See, without the new birth, the Bible says you're spiritually dead. You are cut off from the life of God. Uh, You are going to perish John 3.16, our favorite verse, does mention that word that people like to avoid, perish. John 3.36 says that you are under the wrath of God if you are not born again, if you do not believe in Jesus. But there's a second reason you must be born again, and 
the verses that we're going to consider today zero in on them, and that is you need the new birth so that you can understand and respond to spiritual truth. See, again, Nicodemus had studied the Old Testament, but he didn't get what Jesus was saying because he wasn't born again. Now, most scholars, not all, but most, would agree that by the time of Jesus' crucifixion, Nicodemus had come to faith, and that's evidenced by the fact that he had the courage to go to Pilate and um, with uh, Joseph of Arimathea to take Jesus' body for a proper burial. But at this point, it's obvious he is not yet born again, and so he's spiritually confused in spite of all of his years of religious studies, of religious practices, of devotion to all the ways of Judaism. He doesn't get it. I don't know whether the Apostle Paul, who also was a Pharisee, had talked with Nicodemus. There's a good chance he had. Or whether he knew this story. Before John was written, of course, after Paul wrote this. But in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul said this, But a natural man, that is a man who has not been born again, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And then he goes farther. And he cannot understand them. He doesn't even have the capacity to understand them because he says they are spiritually appraised. Now, we can learn four things from these verses that we read earlier here in John 3. The first one in verse 6 is that there is this fundamental divide between the physical and the spiritual. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And so Jesus draws this sharp line between our natural birth and spiritual birth. By flesh, I believe Jesus is referring to human nature as we are all born naturally, uh, children of Adam. If you'll remember back to our study in Romans chapter 5, Paul argues that all of us were born under Adam's curse. We inherited Adam's sin nature. And so we are all born separated from God, unable to submit to God and come to God. And as much as I love little babies, i got 11 grandkids, but I love babies, but they are not born spiritually neutral. They are not born spiritually positive with a bent toward seeking after God. And every parent knows this because when they hit about one or two, you begin to see, where did this child get this bent toward selfishness and toward stubbornness and disobedience? It is inherent in us all. And we need the new birth. We need the Spirit of God to impart spiritual life so that we can be born as God's children. We saw this back in John 1, verses 12 and 13. John wrote, But as many as received Him, Jesus, to them He gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's what we're talking about here, is being born of God. Born a second time. There is this divide between what is born of the flesh and what is born of the Spirit. 
In John 6.63, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. O Lord, muttered Alexander Pope one day, make me a better man. And his more spiritually enlightened servant replied, it would be easier to make you a new man. (laughs) And that's the point. God doesn't take the flesh and improve it. There are all sorts of uh, worldly counselors out there who try to help you improve your flesh. One of them writes in our Arizona Daily Sun newspaper, and I skim his columns sometimes, and I think, well, there's the best of worldly advice. He's telling you how to spruce up the flesh, you know, get it in order, be a better person. That's not what the new birth is all about. Uh, The new birth is life that comes from God that changes you from the inside out, changes your heart, as we saw last time. And thus, verse 7 follows, it is absolutely essential that you experience the new birth. Verse 7, do not be amazed that I said to you, Jesus was reading nonverbal here with with, uh, Nicodemus. I think he was seeing the shock on his face. That I said to you, you must be born again. Don't miss the word must. It's a strong word of necessity. It means it's not an option. Genuine Christianity is as the Puritan Henry Skugel titled his book, it is nothing less than the life of God in the soul of man. It's a great little book if you can pick it up. It's still in print. Skugel wrote that book in 1677. He was 27 years old when he wrote it. He died of tuberculosis at 28. Uh, About a half a century later, in the early 1700s, there was a 21-year-old Oxford student who began to realize that he needed to reform his debauched and wicked life. And so he resolved to change. He tried to change the flesh, as I mentioned. He denied himself every luxury. He began wearing ragged clothes. He began eating only foods that he hated, that were repugnant to him. He fasted twice a week. He gave his money to the poor. And he spent entire nights laying out on the cold stones or in the wet grass in prayer, trying to reform his life. But he said he felt like he was trying to paint over a rotten board. Yesterday I was painting on my house and I discovered a rotten part of a board. If you paint over that, it's, it's just camouflaging the problem. You've got to chip that board away till you get to the solid stuff and then fill it in. Well, uh, he felt like he was just trying to cover up the inward corruption with his outward deeds. And then he had a college friend by the name of Charles Wesley. Maybe you've heard of him. He wrote about 8,000 hymns that we still sing today. And Charles Wesley gave his friend, George Whitfield, who was the struggling young man, Henry Skugel's book, The Soul, uh, I mean, The Life of God and the Soul of Man. Whitfield read Skugel's book with amazement and delight. It told him, True Christianity is a union of your soul with God. It is Christ being formed in us. And Whitfield wrote this. He said, When I read this, a ray of divine light 
instantaneously darted in upon my soul. From that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. After having undergone innumerable buffetings by day and by night, he's referring to all of the the self-imposed asceticism that he, he had tried to follow. He says, God was pleased at length to remove my heavy load and enable me by a living faith to lay hold of his dear son. And oh, with what joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory, was I filled when the weight of sin left me and an abiding sense of the pardoning love of God broke in upon my disconsolate soul. And Whitfield's favorite scripture became John chapter 3 and verse 3, which in the King James Version that he had read, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He went on to preach more than 18,000 sermons. You do the math. He only lived to be 55. That's a lot of preaching. And he could preach outdoors comfortably to a, a crowd of 20, or Benjamin Franklin, who was always the scientist, listened to Whitfield, and he estimated that Whitfield could command an audience of 30,000 people outdoors without a microphone. I can't imagine. One time I was in the uh, Sky Dome, which holds about 15,000, 17,000, and the microphone went out, and you couldn't hear the guy down on the floor. He was still speaking, and he was speaking fairly loudly. Couldn't even hear him. Whitfield could preach to 30,000 outdoors without a microphone. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, God used him. He came over to America numerous times. He was used in the First Great Awakening. He became friends with Jonathan Edwards. Um, and in one of his final sermons, he said this, I am now 55 years of age, and I tell you that I am more than ever convinced that the truth of the new birth is a revelation of God or from God Himself, and that without it you can never be saved by Jesus Christ. A friend asked him one day, Why do you so often preach on ye must be born again? And Whitfield said, Because. Because, looking at him solemnly and in the face, because ye must be born again. (laughs) So how can a person then know if he's been born again? Well, Jesus explains that in verse 8. The effects of the new birth, Jesus said, are unmistakable. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Perhaps Jesus and Nicodemus were sitting up on the rooftop. They commonly did that in that country in the evening to catch the cool evening breezes. And uh, they felt the wind blow, and Jesus may have said, Did you feel that, Nicodemus? You can't see the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't understand the wind. The wind goes where it pleases. But you can't observe its effects. Did you see the curtain blow? Did you hear the leaves rustle there in the wind? Uh, Even so, it is with the Holy Spirit. You can't control the Spirit because the Spirit works according to His own sovereign will. 
You can't understand the Spirit because He is God. But you can see the effects when He works, uh, when He brings new birth to a soul. And the changes, Nicodemus, are not external. It doesn't mean that you start putting on certain robes and adding tassels to your robes and phylacteries so that men can see your outward righteousness. No, no, it's a change within, brought about by new life. And where the Spirit works, its effects are very plain to see. Well, you say, well, what are those effects? Well, I mentioned some last week, but this time let me just go to... um, John's words himself. John wrote the little epistle of 1 John to let the church know how you can spot someone who is born of God. Because they were being infiltrated by false teachers who were very clever and very knowledgeable of the Bible, but they weren't born again. And so John gives a number of signs of the new birth. And... uh, Here are some of the references in 1 John. 1 John 2.29 If you know that He, Jesus, is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. 1 John 3.9 No one who is born of God practices sin because His seed abides in Him. And He cannot sin because He is born of God. I did a whole sermon on that uh, section if you want to look it up on the website. Uh, First, I did a whole sermon series on 1 John. 1 John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life. Here's how we know it. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Or again, 1 John 4.7 Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone Who loves is born of God and knows God. 1 John 5.1 Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So it's a matter there of faith in the right object. Uh, And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. 1 John 5.4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Or 1 John 5.18, we know that no one born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Now, those references to not sinning do not refer to a sinless life, but they do refer to a life that sins less. See the difference? John is not talking, in other words, about a life of perfection because in other places in 1 John, he mentions what to do if you sin. 1 John 1.9, 1 John 2.1, that kind of thing. But what he means is, all whom the Spirit of God saves, he sanctifies. And so it's looking at a new direction in life, not perfection of life. When you get saved, your life changes. And if there is no change there is reason to question, was there the new birth? Now, it's over a lifetime, and it's never perfect in this lifetime. We will all die falling short, but the book of Hebrews says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So we must be growing in the direction of holiness, which is a result of the seed of the new birth that has been planted in us. 
And those who are born of the Spirit of God develop the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If those qualities are not growing in you, again, go back to square one. Has God caused me to be born again to a living hope? Is God's Spirit living in me? As I walk in the Spirit, I should be growing in those qualities. All of us, of course, fall short of perfection in them, but those ought to mark our lives. J.C. Ryle, who was a godly Anglican bishop in the 19th century, looked around at the thousands of nominal cultural Christians in the Anglican church of his day, and he asked the question, what do they like best when they have a choice? What do they enjoy most? See, he's looking at their desires and their, their likes when they can have their own way. Observe the manner in which they spend their Sundays. That was the only day off then. Mark how little delight they seem to feel in the Bible and prayer. Take notice of the low earthly notions of pleasure and happiness which everywhere prevail. And then he asks his readers to ponder this question. What would these people do in heaven? (laughs) It's an interesting question, isn't it? In other words, he's saying, if you love the world and the things of the world, what in the world are you going to do when you get into heaven? You're not going to like the place. You know, your heart's desire is for all the stuff of this world. And if we're not growing to delight ourselves in the Lord, we're going to feel awfully out of place if we ever got to heaven. That's his point. And so Jesus has shown Nicodemus there's this fundamental divide between the flesh, that which is born in the flesh, and that which is born in the Spirit. And therefore, it's essential that you experience the new birth in order to enter God's kingdom. And though you may not understand exactly how it happens, Jesus said, when it happens, you can always see the effects of it in a person who has been born again. Then the final truth in verses 9 to 13 here is that the only way then to understand spiritual truth is to believe the testimony of Jesus. And Jesus makes two points here. First of all, in verses 9 and 10, he shows that religious learning is useless apart from the new birth. See verse 9 and 10, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be or happen? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? See, for years, Nicodemus had taught others the way into God's kingdom is to be a good Jew. You were fortunate enough to be born a Jew. That's the first step. You're, you're in so far. But now you need to be a good Jew. You need to keep the commandments. You need to keep the traditions of the elders. And uh, if you work hard at that, you will get into God's kingdom. And here Jesus comes along and has a head-on with him, 180, and says, you're totally wrong. You've absolutely been on the wrong track unless you are born again you will not see the kingdom of God. You need new life that comes to you from the Spirit of God. Now, what Jesus says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things, implies these things I'm teaching to you, are, I'm not making them up. They're in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament. 
And we saw last week as we considered what Jesus meant by water in verse 5, uh, that he was probably referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27, where the prophet, God through the prophet, says, Moreover, I, the Lord, will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And then in the next chapter, Ezekiel 37, is the prophet's vision of the valley of dry bones. And as he prophesies, the Spirit of God breathes on these bones and they take on flesh and they come to life. And in verse 14 of Ezekiel 37, the Lord says, I will put my Spirit within you and you will come to life. Sounds like the new birth, doesn't it? Also in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, which Peter cited on the day of Pentecost, the Lord says, It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. Even on the male and female servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. If we had time, I could take you to a number of references in Isaiah as well, where the prophet predicts God will pour out His Spirit, a reference to uh, what Jesus is talking about, the new birth. So Nicodemus shouldn't have been amazed at Jesus' teaching. But the point is this, apart from having God's Spirit through the new birth, spiritual truth is just going to fall on deaf ears or... Even worse, you're going to think, that's nonsense, it's foolishness, Paul says. And you'll miss the main point of the Bible. And it doesn't matter, you can know Hebrew, you can know Greek, you can study theology, but without the new birth, you won't get it. John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling, there's the problem, you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. And then Jesus makes a second point in verses 11 to 13, and that is that he is the infallible revealer of spiritual truth because he came down from heaven. Notice verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, notice it's the third time Jesus has used that solemn introduction to Nicodemus, truly Truly, he used it in verse 3, he used it again in verse 5, and now he uses it in verse 11. And it means, you better perk up, this is important. And I am emphasizing, Jesus is saying, I am emphasizing why what I say to you is the truth. If you reject what Jesus says about the new birth, 
then you're arrogantly asserting you know more than Jesus who says He came down from heaven to tell us the way to God, to explain to us the things of God, the things of heaven, and that is a very serious sin. He knows what He's talking about. But you see, that's the problem with the Jewish leaders. Jesus' testimony about God His testimony about the new birth, about how to have your sins forgiven, confronted their religious pride because they wanted to pride themselves in their good deeds. See, we're a notch above the common people. We're Pharisees. We do this. We do that. We we take pride in this and that. And God comes along and said, your pride is sin. Your pride is a serious sin in the sight of God. And you need a Savior. And sin is always at the heart of rejecting the testimony of Jesus. It's not intellectual reasons as we've seen. That's a smokescreen. It's because I don't want to submit my life to Jesus and admit that I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. Now, there are a couple of difficulties here we need to resolve in these verses. First of all is the puzzle Why does Jesus shift from the first person singular where he says, I say to you, in verse 11, and then to the plural, we speak of what we know. Um, Probably it was because in Jewish thinking, it took two or three witnesses to establish a fact in a court of law. Um, Jesus in John 5.31 tells the Jews, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, he doesn't mean he's telling lies. He means it wouldn't hold up in a court of law. Because in a court of law, you need more than one witness. You need at least two or three. And in that text, in John 5, Jesus goes on and he says, I'm not the only one testifying. The Father testifies of me. John the Baptist has testified of me. Um and uh, my works testify of me, and the the Scriptures themselves testify of me. So he had many witnesses. I think here in John 3, he may have been referring to the witness of John the Baptist. Uh, He may have been referring to the witness of the Father. But I think that since he has just told Nicodemus, you should have known these things, when he says we in the next verse, he is referring to the Old Testament prophets. They bore witness of Jesus. And if Nicodemus knew them, then he should put it together. When Jesus spoke, this is the one. This is the Messiah that was prophesied of. And he didn't accept that witness. A second difficulty in these verses is, what does Jesus mean when he says, uh, I told you earthly things, And then he says, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? I think that Calvin is on target here when he says that Jesus is referring there to his manner of teaching. He has just used two earthly illustrations, birth and the wind, to illustrate spiritual truth. And he is saying, Nicodemus, if you didn't get what I was saying when I used those simple human illustrations about birth and the new birth, about wind and the Holy Spirit, how would you get it if I were to talk to you about the Trinity or the substitutionary atonement 
or uh, my incarnation, born of the virgin, and all of those truths. So that's, I think, what he means by earthly and heavenly things. And then the third difficulty is how to understand verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, some translations, if you have a King James or New King James, it adds after the Son of Man the phrase, who is in heaven. There is a textual variant there. Um, Some scholars argue that the variant was in the original text because, A, it is a difficult reading, and uh, therefore no later scribe would have added it, and they contend that a later scribe may have dropped it to avoid the difficulty, uh, the suggestion that Jesus was at that very moment in heaven. Other scholars, and it's the majority of scholars, think that a later scribe may have added that phrase because later in the church there were Christological controversies going on and a scribe may have wanted to establish Jesus' omnipresence and added the, um, the phrase. It's a difficult textual issue. My view is it seems unlikely to me that Jesus would have thrown in that phrase as he was talking in the upper room or wherever he was to Nicodemus that night. Of course, it is true of Jesus. He was in heaven uh, in that he is omnipresent in his divine nature, but he was there with Nicodemus on earth. But the question is, what did the original text say? I'm inclined to think it was left out. Now, by his words in verse 13, Jesus is saying, no one else on earth has ever gone up into heaven so that he could come back to earth and report to you what heaven is like and what the Father is like. But I came from up there. I came from heaven. And by saying the Son of Man in verse 14, uh, Nicodemus instantly, knowing the Old Testament, would have thought of Daniel 7, 13, and 14, where Daniel looks into heaven and he sees one like a Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, and it was none other, of course, than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus uniquely understands heavenly mysteries because he came to us from the Father, as John has a favorite word all through his gospel, sent. Jesus was sent to earth by the Father. And so he can speak authoritatively, and we should accept his witness. And we have that witness not only in the gospel of John, not only in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Uh, Not only in the New Testament, but all of the Old Testament, Jesus said, was written to tell of Him. And so as you read the Bible, pray for God to give you eyes to see the Lord Jesus all through the Bible. It all points to Him and culminates in Him. The late Bible teacher Harry Ironside told a visiting a very godly Irishman, an old gentleman by the name of Andrew Fraser. Fraser had tuberculosis, and back then they didn't have a medical cure for it. He had come to California to recuperate. His lungs were almost gone, and Ironside went to him and sat as the old man opened his worn Bible until his strength was almost gone. He just very simply and sweetly opened up truth after truth in a way that 
Ironside had never heard before. And before long, Ironside realized that he had tears running down his cheeks as he heard this dear old saint talk about the Lord Jesus. And finally, Ironside asked Fraser, he said, where did you get these things? Could you tell me where I could find a book that would open them all up to me? Or did you get them in some seminary or Bible college? And Fraser answered, My dear young man, I learned these things on my knees in a mud on the mud floor of a little sod cottage in the north of Ireland. And there with my Bible open before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and I would ask the Spirit of God to reveal the things of Christ to my soul. And he said, I learned more on my knees in that little mud sod cottage than I could have learned in all the seminaries or all the colleges of the world. And that's a major reason why you need the new birth. The Bible is going to be a mystery to you until you have it. And when you get it, it's not that it all falls into place. I've been studying it for over 40 years now, and there's a lot of things I do not understand. But it begins to open up to you. And so ask God, as you have your time in the Word, often, you do, I hope, it's a treasure, but it's a treasure that you have to have eyes to see. And so ask Him as you read the Word, God, would you open up through your Spirit the things about Christ in this book to me so that I might know you. And as David said in Psalm 19, these truths are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, and they're sweeter than the honeycomb, sweeter than honey itself for your soul. Dear Father, I pray that through the new birth, you would open our eyes to see the glory, the beauty of the Lord Jesus as revealed in your inspired word that you have given to us. Just take a moment before the Lord. If God has convicted you of something in the message, your need to be in the word, your prayer life, sin in your life, just take it to the Lord. If you need the new birth, just cry out, Oh God, I'm lost, I'm perishing. Give me faith to believe in Jesus. Dear Father, I pray You would work in our hearts for Your namesake, for Your glory, that we all would see more of our wonderful Savior through your precious word that you've given to us. Help us to treasure it more than gold, to delight in it more than honey. For Jesus' sake, amen.